0: Welcome, everybody, to another Lessons from the Front. I am your host, Todd Boding. We are fortunate enough to have uh, Carry the Load continue to sponsor this podcast. I guess we're, uh, we're not getting kicked off just yet, so thank you to Carry the Load for, for all that Carry the Load does. And as my guest today, I've got a, a fantastic guest, a very unique guest, and his name is Mark Devine, former United States Navy SEAL. Uh, that's not what makes him uh, unique unto itself. Uh, Mark has continued to thrive in the civilian world, which is not something that we can all say coming out of the military. So, Mark, I just want to say, welcome to Lessons from the Front.
1: Uh, thanks for having me here. It's a real honor. Appreciate it.
0: Well, again, thanks for uh, for taking the time. You have uh, uh, you've seen a lot. You've done a lot in your career already. You've uh, you, you spent a lot of time, uh, I think, reflecting on your career and and your service. And and that's where uh, I think your books, which we're going to talk about later, really come into play. Uh, I've read a couple of your books now. Um, It's, it's easy to see that you've spent a lot of time reflecting on it because you're really open to sharing your scars, which to me is one of the true leadership traits. So before we get into any of that though, we always want to know who was Mark Devine before the military. Yeah. How much time we got? <laughs> as much time as you need. <laughs> Actually, but but I'm, but I'm not a licensed therapist, so I just want to okay. throw, that, throw that out there.
1: Oh, darn. Shoot. I was hoping to get a little freebie here. Um, well, you know, I, I didn't I probably should start by saying I didn't join the military until I was 25. And nor did I have plans or designs like a lot of the people I train who, you know, who, at 14 decide they want to be a Navy SEAL or army ranger or, you know, fly jets. And they just, they just radar lock on that. Or they grew up in a family with, um, you know, military veterans. And it just seems to be a good idea for them to follow that path Or they're super patriotic as a result of something like nine one one. And they want to go serve. I had none of that. In fact, I grew up in a really small town upstate New York. My family is a business family, had a a company that had been around for over 120 years so it's multi-generational, I was pretty much psychologically groomed to go into business to basically take over that business. Uh, I went to Colgate University in upstate New York, a uh, small liberal arts school, uh, graduated with an economics degree, and immediately took a job down in Manhattan with a big accounting firm.
0: So you're academically challenged. We can, we can hear that right yeah, now. Yeah, I again.
1: was <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, it that was obviously
0: said in jest for those of you who don't right, know Colgate Interesting.
1: In Interesting, that does tie into the who I was. I really, though I performed really well academically, um, I, I really lacked confidence. Um, and I lacked kind of a sense of directionality in my life. And so I truly was doing what a lot of people do. And this is nothing unusual, nor is it wrong. But I was just kind of following the script that was really written for me, laid out for me, both culturally and, and through my family. And so there I was, you know, Coopers and Libran, which later became PricewaterhouseCoopers. I met uh, working my way toward becoming an auditor and a consultant and also going to NYU Stern School of Business to get my MBA at night. So the package looked pretty appealing from that perspective of that script of getting into corporate America, finding success, making money, then maybe, you know, going back to bring those skills to the family business, continue that legacy. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, that was a, it's a super valid path to take. Uh, Todd, it just wasn't my path. And probably the most significant thing that happened to me in those four years that I ended up being in New York, getting my MBA, becoming a certified public accountant, working for multiple clients in the finance industry as a consultant and an auditor was that I began a practice of meditation through Zen, a simple practice um, with a martial arts master who I had stumbled upon. I wanted to get into karate or a martial art and I stumbled upon this guy. And it was very fortuitous that he was also a Zen master who brought that training into his martial arts. It's very rare to have those two combined in the West, the way that he combined them. And I took to that really, um, there's something about The way I was brought up, and we could get into that, but there's probably more of a psychological bent to that, that caused me to really, really appreciate and gravitate toward the Zen training, which was just sitting in silence. I believe now in retrospect that it reminded me a lot of the escapism that I participated in. Whenever the family violence kind of rose up, you know, I would slip out the backjack and head into the wilderness And that was kind of like my meditation. And so when I found Zen, I was like, holy cow, here I am in the middle of this concrete jungle, Manhattan, you know, 20 million people teeming around me, constant noise. And I could sit on this bench and find that same silence that I found in nature in upstate New York in the Adirondack Mountains. That was a long long introduction, but who I was changed dramatically from this kid who really didn't have a clue, was following the, you know, the drumbeat of, you know, society and my parents to go make a lot of money and be successful in in those outer materialistic ways. And then I sat down on a little meditation bench and four years later, I was in the seals. It's pretty fascinating, actually, when you think of it that way.
0: No, it, it really is. And, you know, you kind of glossed over a piece that I, that I know you were, you know, you've told me before you're willing to share, but I think it's a very important piece that really tied into who you were and why you were drawn into service and, and that was your, your home life. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, by your admission, by things, you know, that I've read in your book, it was not pleasant. Um, and I, I know that, you know, you probably thought you were alone at that time. Uh, the only one going through something like that. And there's probably a lot of people out there, even some that may be watching this mm-hmm. that, that uh, feel like they're alone. What happened i mean what what well, was it that you had to really deal with
1: yeah i, I don 't think what I dealt with was anything unusual, right? Everyone has their pros and cons of you know the familial life um, and for a long time, you know I think that I played the blame game or the victim game and and said, well, you know, the, the violence from my father, you know, caused me to shut down a certain way or the relationship between my mom and dad, you know, created these patterns. And all of that's true, right? That's what happens when we grow up in a family and there's withheld love or violence or rage or any, any type of insert, you know, whatever it is. Human beings experience trauma, particularly in the earliest stages of their life. And then that trauma creates the emotional patterns that we then live out. And we either just live them out and deal with it, or we take a look at them and begin to um, question like, Hey, what caused this? Why is this pattern causing uh, me to react a certain way, often in negative ways that are holding me back or not allowing me to see um, maybe my own brilliance or my own creative expression or my calling in life.
0: Yeah. They, so they become they, metaphoric they, ceilings.
1: They become ceilings and or cages. Right. And I li- literally, agree with that. I felt like, as a teenager, I was trapped in a prison of my own making. But, you know, and I say my own making because it really was my mind that had caused my emotional state to really shut down. Now, ironically, ironically, this is exactly the type of um, upbringing that would make someone absolutely thrive in a military special operations environment right? And so I can see the goodness in it. And I can see exactly why I was born into this family and exactly why I needed that type of upbringing. So I actually honor my parents for it. But it was there was pain associated with that, just like there isn't any kind of trauma. And then when I see and I've done a lot of podcasts myself, I hear of other people's trauma, you know, I, I always want to stop talking about it. Because, you know, mine was probably minor, you know, ridiculously small. And there was a lot of really good things that my family brought to me. And uh, so you know, it's important to not overplay, but also to appreciate how trauma creates those ceilings. And that the only way out of the prisons that we created for ourselves is to, is to ref- become self-reflective, self-referential, and to develop that, that awareness that we have the capacity and only we have the capacity to unlock that prison door.
0: The, the, the upbringing that you had, you didn't even realize it was preparing you for Uh, for the SEAL teams.
1: Didn't have a clue.
0: Then you come across a, uh, because you you said there was no military in your background, uh, in your family's background.
1: Well, Uh, my dad was in the army because a judge told him, you either join the army or you go to jail. So he said, army, (laughs) before the judge. (laughs) Yeah, A or B, A. So he well, went see, that,
0: that's part of that academic excellence that uh, is in your background. <laughs> right. He chose he smart, wisely. He, knew.
1: he was smart. So he spent two years in the 11th Airborne, which was disbanded uh, a couple of years after that. Morel okay. was horrible. I didn't realize that. They were supposed to be part of the European occupation. You know, now we're in the 50s and like they didn't have much to do. They were drinking a lot. And so my dad's experience in the Army was maybe just a little bit better than jail. So he never talked about it. You know joining the military for my family was like throwing everything away they did not have any did not want me to have anything to do with it and when i told my mom and dad that i was you know walking away from my brilliant career and joining the seals they literally i mean they were just i I literally stopped them in their tracks and left them speechless and then my mom starts crying she's like navy seals aren't those those baby killers (laughs) <laughs> because the seals had this vicious reputation out of Vietnam, right? Of course. Well, and, and
0: I was going to ask if that had to do with Vietnam. I, I felt certain yeah. it did because, you know, you were uh, you were joining about the same time I was. Uh, mm-hmm. I may have been a couple years behind you, but that was that was my mother's reaction when I joined the Marine Corps. She was, was like, you know, <laughs> we've been talking. Maybe what you need is the military, but we weren't thinking the Marine Corps. I mean, you know, and it and it goes back to the reputation out of Vietnam. And, right. you know, you use the term baby killer. How many times did we hear that in, in our early days of service?
1: It's horrible, I know.
0: So, okay, so so you, you chose the Navy SEALs because you were driven, some of this had to do with, I mean, did, did, was it real conscious that you said, that's what I'm going to do because of this? Or was it more a matter of, you know, my understanding about the military is if I want to push myself to the very edge, this is where I need to be. Is it? Can you describe how, which?
1: More more of the latter, but I didn't know about the SEALs, which is ironic. Again, there was not a lot of information back in the eighties about the Navy SEALs. You're aware of that, right? It's right. They were a secret organization. There were only several hundred of them and, um, there was no movies. There were a couple old Vietnam era books, which I ended up finding, but there, was not, there just wasn't information out there like there is today. So, and, and it's kind of one of the things I teach about finding your calling um, to my clients today is like finding your calling is a very um, unusual process, right? It, it's not, it doesn't jump right in your lap, right? It's not something that you can think your way into with your rational mind. At the same time, you have to use your rational mind to think about well, Am I doing the right thing now? What is good about this? What do I not like about this? If I don't like it, can I make it better? Maybe it's just, you know, maybe I'm not getting paid enough, or maybe I just need a different job. But, but there's something telling me that it's not right. I'm misaligned. I had all that going on, and I was journaling and I was thinking, Why do I not feel good or right in this corporate thing? You know, should be fine like all systems go mba cpa climbing the corporate ladder everyone else says i'm rocking it but i don't feel right it doesn't feel good so then i had to ask better questions you know and i've heard this said before so this is nothing miraculous but the quality of your life is really dictated by the quality of the questions that we ask and so i started to ask better questions right interesting if 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 this isn't right for me then what could be now, this is where the, I began to open up my mind and start to sense that there was more to it than just thinking, right? Rational thinking, left brain rational thinking, which is what we're taught is the nature of mind. Well, it's not. It's just, a, it's just one aspect of your mind. And we don't usually use that very well either because it's full of biases and and you know these emotional shadow elements that I talked about that most people aren't aware of and they just let them play out. So even the rational mind is not to be trusted so where i found the rest of my mind was sitting on that bench and in silence and so in silence now your brain is starts to slow down you get into those alpha uh, rhythms sometimes even a theta while you're still awake and aware and then you kind of decouple from the thinking mind you're not engaged in thought you might have some thoughts but eventually what happens is your your mind. Learns to um, almost like metacognitively separate, like a, like you'd separate a hard drive, into part of your brain that can observe your thinking, and then the part of your brain that engages in thinking. And you begin to see that they're not the same. So you you disidentify with your thoughts. So instead of after uh, about a year on that bench, I didn't think of myself as I am Mark Devine, uh, MBA CPA this and that. I just was able to see those things as as um, ideas that are now being acted upon that are coming to fruition. But don't identify I don't identify as that. I was something much. I was something much more. Now everyone you know, everyone especially males have that kind of warrior energy, warrior archetype. But this is more than that. This is like I'm meant to be a warrior. Like I've been a warrior probably for many lifetimes. I'm supposed to go out and and finish the job. And I can't do that in this corporate pattern. You know, I'm not a corporate warrior. I'm something else. So once I started to really jive with that and be like, yeah, that feels right. That feels right. I don't know what to do about it now. So then I had to re-engage my rational mind and be like, if that's what I'm being pointed toward, how would I play that out in this world? How would I play that out? Could I be could I do that in the corporate world? No. Could I do that back at the family business? No. Could I do it as a teacher? No, not not now. Could I do it as a fighter jock? Hmm. Yeah, we're getting closer. Could I do it as a Marine? Damn straight, I could. And so I started I, I started a process I called putting on the uniform, right? So I would visualize myself as a fighter pilot. going went through the whole, everything I could think about, right? Checklists, you know, getting the cockpit, you know, taking off, flying at Mach 2 or whatever, being in a dogfight. And I started to feel into that. And then I started to feel into being a Marine. Like, what would that feel like? Everything I could think about, I'd read some things. Another one I looked at is being a roughneck, you know, like, what would it be like to be a roughneck and, you know, on an oil rig platform somewhere? Like, it's a pretty gritty lifestyle. Yeah. All of these things had a sense of adventure, danger, needed requiring athletic prowess, you know, great self-awareness and leadership capacity in danger, in dangerous situations. So while I was going through this process, I was walking home from the, either the dojo or work one night and I came across a Navy recruiting office and I looked into the windows. I'm like, I wonder what the Navy's up to. And I saw this poster and literally I stopped in my tracks and I just stared at it for, you know, 20 minutes or so. And, it, and the poster didn't say anything about the SEALs, but across the top, it said, be someone special. And then it had pictures of SEALs doing cool stuff, you know, like free falling and mm-hmm. this little mini sub- submarine with these, you know, two frogmen swimming outside of it. <laughs> and You know, a sniper in a hide site you could barely find. You'd have to look hard. I was just transfixed. And that's when I knew that was it. So it's not like I had this menu and SEALs was on it. It's like it was revealed to me that I was meant to be a warrior. I started looking at different options. And then the universe basically served up the SEALs to me by putting me in front of that poster.
0: But you know what's interesting is that you know the, the youth you described and having to kind of go off by yourself, get away from everything and everyone uh, in order to, to, to get in the place um, really, where you were comfortable, um, your background from a, an athletic standpoint, if I remember correctly, you were a swimmer, uh, in college. Um, a lot of the things that you describe are actually very solo practitioner, good point in, yeah. in execution. Yet, you know, and so when you said fighter jockey, that's where my mind would have gone. Had you had I not known everything else, I would have thought, here's a guy that. Okay, he's drawn to service, but fighter jockeys, you know, there's a lot of of solo practitioner there. That doesn't mean they don't have a wingman. We know that. But you pick the one path that probably has more, I mean, everybody knows about the, well, I don't know if everybody knows, but, you know, you guys have swim buddies and that, and you can't do anything without your swim buddy. Right. You pick probably the one thing that has more team and social element within your group than anything else you could have done in the military. That's right. Is, that's a little bit of
1: a... That, because, you know, that spirit told me that the reason, or one of the main reasons that I was meant to be a warrior, that I needed to get on that path was leadership, right? So I've used the term warrior leader. Uh, you know, that is the most challenging leadership environment in the world and you can't lead in the military as you know as a marine you can't lead without team like there is no solo leadership but if you're a fighter jock yeah you can go up and you know, you're know you kind of leading your airplane and you might be leading your wing but that is pretty much a solo thing like you said relative to a small spec ops unit or running right an infantry battalion or, or a platoon in the marine corps so I knew that whatever I was going to do, if it was going to be a military it had to be up close and personal, uh, gritty, and I had to be leading men and women in situations where their lives were in my hands, in my decisions anyways, and that we were either together going to get through this or I had a real um, opportunity or possibility of killing myself or other people. For some reason, that just was the, that was the calling. And the seals fit that perfectly, you know. My background as a swimmer, an endurance athlete, comfortable science, that all also worked out perfectly well. But if I hadn't been also willing to take my eyes off myself, put in my, my on my teammates, to really make it about the team, I would have failed. I wouldn't have even made it through seal training, because you're you know, seal training is all about the individual's ability to subordinate themselves to the team as while simultaneously performing at an elite level. So it's very, very unique. And it's one of the reasons that most people fail is they don't understand that. They just work on the elite performance at an individual level. They don't recognize that that's great, you gotta do that, that's a prerequisite and you gotta maintain that. But it's really about your team. That's why like some of the first people to quit or get rolled out are like the, the you know, prima donna, captain of the football team, super stud, everything came easy to them types. Right don't make it.
0: So obviously you got to experience uh, a, a lot of things. You came in during peacetime. And uh, so what What were the years that you were in? Was it 87 through? I, I ended up going to OCS
1: in 90. 90, okay. 89, 90. Then I went through BUDS in 1990. I served uh, my first active duty stint uh, up through 97, mostly a, a team three, SEAL team three, and then okay. SEAL. Seal delivery vehicle team one in Hawaii, which is the mini submersible team. And then um, I got off active duty, but stayed in the reserves. And that's when I became an entrepreneur. And then I was recalled in uh, 2000 and served in um, Middle East and Northern Africa. And then I was recalled again to go to Iraq in 2004. So all told, I ended up doing like nine years of active duty and 11 years of reserve time. Retired as a commander in 2011. So 20 years of total service, but, you know, a little less than half was, was active duty, you know, in the field, kicking
0: down doors and stuff. So, you know, as, as we title the podcast lessons from the front, is there any single experience, any, anything that you recall on a regular basis, anything that really, that, that you can point to that really shaped who you are, how you operate today, um, Things that other people might do well to, to learn from.
1: Yeah. Well, like like many military guys, especially in the SEALs, there's nothing but stories. And you know, with a good beer, we could t- <laughs> and a fire, we could tell some yarns, right? We could spin some yarns. I, I'd like to share two. Uh one of them is one you mentioned is from the first chapter of my book, Staring Down the Wolf. And this is really about um not letting a personal failure um, define your life, even if it's a big one, and also uh, from a different perspective, for leaders to allow for second chances when those that they on their team have a failure. And because you know, one of the things we learned at in the SEALs at a team level, and this is more tactic, you know, strategy and tactics, was that. There's no perfect op. There's no perfect mission. Failure is your friend. Failure becomes your constant companion. And so we don't let we don't define our success through or you know, we don't define things in binary way, like success and failure. We define things in how we how fast we can learn and get to the objective and having that objective look somewhat like we originally envisioned it, right? Like victory looks something like that. And then we're gonna fail our way forward toward it. And the faster we can fail our way or iterate our failures toward that acceptable outcome, then the better we are as a team. It's one of the reasons SEALs are so darn effective. And we had a saying that failure is not an option that a lot of people misunderstood because they thought that that meant you can't fail. In the reality was it meant that the word failure is not an option because that's all we're gonna experience is just failing our way to success. Because you just replace failure with learning moments, right? We learn how not to do it, we learn how to do it, we learn how better to do it, we learn you know, what to avoid and you know, we try everything until we find a way or make a way, right? Or we're told to stand down. So I learned that strategically and tactically, but I had to learn it in regards to my own life as well because your life has no perfect plan either and the enemy of circumstance has a say and for my circumstance, one of the things about my family of origin was alcohol abuse, you know, ran multi-generational on both my parents' side. And my dad was certainly uh, part and parcel of that. And so I learned to use alcohol, you know, to kind of maybe feel a little bit as like my blanket, you know, I, when things got tough, you know, have a beer or two. And and because I was so disciplined and, and athletic, you know, I, I wouldn't let it interfere with those things and so I could go months without drinking but then you know at the end of the season or at the end of a training mission you know we go go to town right and I always overdo it right with that kind of binge thing I wouldn't go for days but you know one night right is all I needed and and bad things could happen right with that kind of paradigm And so bad things did happen once I not real bad I just went out party with my team I was a junior officer seal team three I'd just come home from my second deployment I was spooling up my new platoon um in fact I, was, I had gotten orders to go to seal team one from seal team three but the commanding officer at the time guy named john McTye, i uh, needed an officer to run a platoon because someone had um, gotten injured or something and so he came and personally asked me to stay for another tour to run another platoon i was like I, I couldn't let the guy down so i said yes so three months into this workup i was the kind of officer you know the seals as you know have really tight relationships with their enlisted guys we go through training side by side we you know we do everything together when we're not in garrison you know we call each other by our first names and i didn't go to a, a ocs i went to ocs i didn't go to like um rotc or the naval academy where i had four years of conditioning you know i was like eight weeks you know just dead water and i was an officer so i i thought a lot of that protocol was shit anyways and anyway, it got me in trouble because I went out drinking with my guys and they're plying me with uh, with scotch and you know didn't do I don't do well with hard alcohol anyways. And then I I you know I just I didn't do anything where I caused any damage, but there was a perception that I was faced, because I was with my guys out in town. And um anyways, and someone someone had called the police because of not not because of something I did, but anyways, it's too too long of a story to get into. And I was ended up being escorted, which is fine because I didn't want to drive, but I'm being escorted down to SEAL team three. And said, okay, you're gonna you're gonna stay here and drink it off. That's uh, the arrangement that they had.
0: Stay there well, and drink it off? You mean sleep it off? Sleep it off is what I okay. meant.
1: <laughs> well, you know, the SEALs, we're gonna drink it off. Now that's
0: <laughs> Well, I was a little concerned when you said that, so
1: But I didn't sleep it off, right? I I decided that everything was fine. And and I literally got up and just walked, I left the command and walked back to my apartment or my girlfriend's apartment. Well, this set off a 3 alarm fire because apparently anytime, you know, someone has a drinking incident and they, you know, bring them to the team, they're supposed to like stay there and be kind of under watch or something like this is kind of juvenile stuff for a lot of people, but you know, the military, how they are. Sure. And um and so a three alarm fire, they're out looking for me. They think I'm possibly stalking someone and I'm just like s- sleeping enough. But now my girlfriend's place. Anyway, so this thing just rang, ran up the flagpole. Like I said, there's more stuff that went on that, you know, I had nothing to do with that, caused this. And so I ended up, um, by the time I was woken up the next morning by my AOIC, he's like, Mark, you gotta come in. This has gotten out of control. My career was toast, right? Admiral was involved and they thought that, you know, this guy had gone rogue. So the new commanding officer at the time who had just come in was a guy named McRaven. And he ended up becoming SOCOM commander, a four-star Admiral later on, but he was a commander at the time. And so he didn't know me from Adam. Uh, You know, he takes a look at the situation. It's not, it doesn't look good. The optics are not good. And so he fires me from my platoon. And that's really painful, especially for an officer. To be fired. And he puts me in the op shop and I get, you know, this letter of reprimand or something like that. And man, I'm I stung, man. Because I I was number ranked number one uh, officer at the command and everybody loved me and I was doing a great job. So it seemed like my career was just absolutely toast at the time. And so I was there for about three months, and that's during the time I get these orders to go to SDV Team One, and I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I want to get out. You know, my motivation was starting was really hurt. And then um, McRaven, they they do their investigation, they find out that there was a lot of misinformation, and that I didn't do what I was someone had claimed that I did, and that the whole thing was blown way blown out of proportion. But the damage was seemingly done. So McRaven uh, came to me and he offered me a second chance. And he said, um, Mark, you know, first of all, I apologize. We, we definitely overreacted in this and I'd like to make it right for you. So I'd like to give you another platoon here, team three, and send you to language school and I want you to go over to the Middle East and, you know, run a platoon over there. And I was really struck by that ability of his or that leadership trait to where he was able to admit that he made a mistake and to give me a second chance. I didn't take him up on the offer, by the way. I decided that I wanted to stay with the path of going to Hawaii with my wife, my new wife. We had gotten married in that time frame. And, uh, you know, try try my hand at the submersible programs. And I also um, began to take that, look at it more like I did when I was on the meditation bench. Be like, oh, wait a minute. You know, this is, I see why this happened. I see this pattern that's been playing out. It got me in trouble. Um, also, I see that this is just an incident. It's not doesn't define who I am. I'm not a bad person. Sure. So what can I learn? And gr- how can I learn and grow from this incident and not let it go to waste? And, and, and this really down.
0: all kind of came from Admiral McRaven, number one, having the courage to look at the information that he had and do the right thing based on the information that he had. But then more importantly having the courage to come back and say, you know what? We were wrong. The information that we had was, was not applicable to the punishment that you received. And we need to reverse that. Right. And, and, and I think that was one of the things I really zeroed in on in your book, is that in order to be courageous, you must do courageous things. And it was right. such a simple quote, mm-hmm. which I loved. by the way, it really, really struck me. Right. And so what you just described, I think is, is, is courageous on a couple of fronts, but it, you, you really, uh, you found your way because of someone else's, uh, courage that was really trying to, to help you and grow you.
1: Right. And he gave me through that, you know, modeling, you know, helped me to see that mistakes are just events. Don't let it define you look for the silver lining of the opportunity of the growth for me, the silver lining was to look at the shadow that had driven me to that pattern of alcohol use and to overcome that shadow. Not to like join AA or spend the rest of my, the rest of my life victimizing myself as an alcoholic or something. I, I didn't think that was it, but what's the emotional pattern and the, you know, the conditioning that led to me to have that behavior which led to the breakdown, like begin to eradicate that become a better person. So McRaven helped me become a better person both through his modeling, but also by like catalyzing this moment of growth and awareness that, you know, for leaders, there's no amount of strategy and tactics that can override negative conditioning or negative shadow. It's always, you know, uh, it's always gonna breach some critical relational energy between the leader and the lead. It's gonna show up as a lack of courage to take a look at those things shows up as a breach of trust or an untrustworthiness, which makes the leaders more transactional as opposed to, to we're in it together and this is a transformational relationship. And then the respect is diminished. And you need courage, trust and respect to really build a relationship as a leader with the team. And then And then from there, you get this massive growth through and with the team. So, I really honor that moment, you know, in my career is like that breakdown, which changed my tra- trajectory of, you know, top seal, going to go to DevGrew, which is our elite tier one unit, like MARSOC or, you know, Delta Force. And now I'm married and I'm at SDVT One, and then I'm on my way out of the Navy. And I look back and I'm like, all that had to happen. It was all happened for a reason. And, and it led me to discover the creative genius inside me, which led to five books and, you know, three businesses, and what other people would consider success. Like the type of success that people marveled at when I was in my early, you know, my first career as a CPA that I turned my back on has finally come to me because of that, the energy that I unlocked through uh, this integrative self transformative process that was really built primarily on the emotional development.
0: You know what, what I I want to throw this up here real quick, you know, for, for those of you who have, have not seen it, here's uh, Mark's latest book, staring down the wolf. And I love that. And I can see behind you, the, the, the wolf's eye. Uh, It took, it took kind of a minute. I'm like, there's a, there's a green spot on the, uh... (laughs) I know. I just (laughs) love that picture.
1: So yeah, I'm staring down the wolf in that picture.
0: But but I I love the, just the, the, the very, concept of staring down the wolf the wolf can be an incredibly intimidating uh, animal but it's a beautiful animal it's a majestic Mm -hmm. animal but man it can be a dangerous animal unless you learn to really to get into their mind and not Mm -hmm. try and overcome them but just understand them. So, understand
1: them. It's and, mutual respect, right? Now, I'm not yeah. suggesting anyone actually like go up into the tundra and find a big bad wolf and stare it down.
0: That, you know, I wouldn't a, recommend it either. I but, wouldn't uh, recommend
1: it until you're like really spiritually advanced and you can have a mutual <laughs> understanding, right? And that's maybe one or two people on this planet.
0: It'd make for a good uh, SNL skit though. It sure would. Yeah. <laughs> We're
1: talking about the wolf of fear and the wolf of courage use the term the courage wolf resides in your heart and the fear wolf is basically your brain it's that left brain that's constantly obsessing and thinking and is going to react negatively to the first sign of trouble and so in order to really get into your heart and be more heart centric leader you you got to first stare down that negative wolf that's in your brain in your mind a lot of people try to do it the other way They an open your heart or, or servant leadership but if you're if you have all that reactionary conditioning and negative processing and the brain itself is wired to be five times as negative as it is positive, And then it's full of all the negative conditioning from social media, the actual media. I mean, look, what's happened in this country. It's just incredible negative energy. And so you've got to turn away from that. You've got to stare it down and turn away from that cognitively and then emotionally open up to the courage wolf of your heart. Now, I also use a term in my training cult uh, from the Japanese warrior traditions, kokoro. So kokoro means to merge your heart and your mind into your actions. So this is the, probably the outcome of training to eradicate fear-based conditioning and negative thinking and to override sh- uh, the shadows and the biases of your brain While simultaneously opening up your heart, which, you know, is really your spiritual center and being able to lead from the heart, but with your mind clarified of all that negative crap so that you can make much better decisions that don't have negative second and third order consequences, aren't about your ego or selfish needs, but are for the benefit of all. And wow, this type of thinking leads us also to be more inclusive and world-centric, whereby we recognize that th- we have this, this sameness in all of us, I don't care whether you're Chinese general or Admiral McRaven or Mark Devine, right, or, or Todd. We have the sameness and when you see the sameness then you can appreciate the unique differences and celebrate them as opposed to thinking I'm separate from you and you know, I'm better than you or my value system is better than yours. So this type of, this feeling of Kokoro of heart, mind, mergent actions leads to more world-centric, inclusive leadership style because you feel more love for your fellow human. It doesn't matter what color they are. And man, just, just as I hear myself say those words, I can imagine, you know, what the world would be like if we actually required, you know, individuals in power positions to, to be able to lead like this. Right? Maybe, yeah. maybe it's a prerequisite somehow.
0: <laughs> well, and unfortunately, that I mean, you're going on a topic that uh, <laughs> well, we could go three more hours on this topic, but no doubt, you know, to, to that extent, um, you know, you were you were drawn to a life of service. Um, you know, and just like all of us, there there was a um, there was a self fulfilling side to it. But I mean, you know, we we didn't all we didn't all you know, answer our our call to serve as a matter of martyrdom. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious, uh, how do you continue to serve today?
1: I don't write because I love writing. I don't podcast because I love podcasting. I do it because if I didn't do it, my brain would probably explode. Like there's, there's just something trying to come out of me that needs to come out. And every book I write is... Torturous, you know, process, and anyone who's listening as an author knows exactly what I'm talking about. But until my spirit says, Don't write anymore, I got to write. So that's one way I serve, right? It's trying to help others see more of a little bit more clearly through whatever words come through me, and I don't really take any credit for that, and help them grow. So that's very inspiring to me, and so assuming I'm successful in connecting with people, then more people buy my books, more people listen to the podcast, more people are um, inspired to maybe take control of their own inner domain and begin to move toward uh, positivity and courage, trust and respect and world centrism. And then simultaneously my business, uh, Unbeatable Mind, has a mission to train and inspire 100 million people in this integrated development program that I was talking about, the Five Mountains physical, mental, emotional, intuitional, spiritual. And we're doing that primarily through training coaches, executive coaches who work with leaders and teams. We have 400 in certified coaches right now. Our goal is to have, you know, 10,000 in 10 years. So it's going to be, that's a BHAG. And we have 27 countries involved. It's pretty cool. And then uh, I started the foundation because I'm really passionate about helping former teammates, not just SEALs, but all vets who are really suffering from post-traumatic stress so the courage foundation is bringing this similar training but with military certified coaches to individuals who are suffering from post-traumatic stress so that we can help them heal and find purpose and find teaming again because those are you know you can send a vet through a, a yoga program or teaching box breathing or something like that and it's going to be helpful but as soon as they get back to their structure in their dark place they don't have a team they don't have a coach to hold them and pull them up when they fall down and you know all those old patterns start settling and then they're still in trouble so we have a year-long program where we help these military vets you know we guide them along this journey back to integration and wholeness again so that's service to me
0: in your experience with with treating post-traumatic stress do you ever really beat it do you ever really overcome it or you know You know, excuse the the pun here. Do you just learn how to stare down the wolf?
1: I think that is overcoming it, but it's always part of who you are. The question is, what's your relationship with who you are? And if you have a a broken relationship with this version of yourself that thinks, you know, has a guilt, you know, survivor's guilt or battlefield shame, or it's usually emotional, moral issues that cause post-traumatic stress. The stress itself, you can bleed off and you can deal with things like breath work and yoga and, you know what I mean? Uh, Electrostim and whatnot. So it's the, it's the emotional and moral injury. So we have to bring moral courage and emotional courage back into the vets. And then they develop a new relationship. Their sense of self evolves. They develop self-esteem and optimism and positivity again. So yeah, but it doesn't mean you can eradicate what happened to them. It's always going to be with them or you can er- er- eradicate their relationship to what happened to them. And I think that's true of any type of emotional development. You know, you can't, if someone was sexually abused as a child, you can't take that away. You can't pretend it didn't happen. You can't erase it from their memory, but you can help them develop a new relationship with how they um, see how that affected their life. And to see also maybe that there were some, there's some good things, you know, maybe there's some strength that it gave them or there's a way that they can turn those lemon lemonades and or lemons into lemonade through helping other women heal. You know, there's always a way to recontextualize, reframe and reboot a life. If you have the courage to take a look and to deal with it.
0: Courage, big word, big word. Well, the, the name of the podcast is the unbeatable mind. Uh, I would uh, encourage people to, to go out and uh, listen to a couple of episodes. Uh, You'll, you'll hear, uh, a phrase referred to as box breathing, something that I'd like to uh, get a little more intelligent about because it, it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty simple, but it sounds like it's extremely effective. It the book is, uh, is staring down the wolf. That's the latest of the five books. Uh, I certainly would encourage reading that. Uh, again, you've got some really good stuff in there. And uh, the final thing is, you know, number one, I want to say thank you for your service. Uh, and it's, um, uh, you know, we've got uh, the Marine Corps birthday today as we record this. And, yeah, happy uh, birthday. Yeah, well, thank you. I've been waiting for you to say that the whole time, Mark. Semper I mean, Fi, great.
1: Semper Fi. You know, <laughs> the SEALS motto is a nod to the Marine Corps motto, and ours was Semper Gumby, right? This is a little Gumby character, so we're always flexible. That's right. Right.
0: That's right. You know, that that was when, when, I, uh, when we were growing up, and I remember seeing Gumby on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I was like, I have no idea what that means, but, you know, Eddie Murphy was really funny doing it. <laughs> Well, the whole Semper, Semper Gumby thing got around to uh, the Marine Corps at one point two. too. Good. Oh, okay. absolutely. Because, you know, that was the Semper Gumby. Here we go again. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, always flexible.
1: Got to be flexible. If you don't like but, the plan, just wait a minute. It'll change.
0: <laughs> but thank you very much again for your service. And, and the final question I have for you is a matter of carry the load. Um, it's very, very important to us that we honor those who have made the ultimate sacrifice mm-hmm. um, for all kinds of reasons. And what I'd love to hear from you is your answer to this question. Who are you carrying?
1: I'm carrying the load for, um, for my teammates in this spec war community, men and women who've sacrificed so much. Cause I feel, you know, I'm most connected to them, but I, I, I feel connected to all military men and women around the world, you know, but specifically for the men and women of Naval Special Warfare.
0: Is there in anyone in particular who's gone before us that you? Uh...
1: One, one of my teammates, you know, I, I often think about and um, really honor him is a guy named Lou Langless. He was in my platoon at SEAL Team 3, you know, when this incident we talked about happened with mm-hmm. Craven and all those individuals in that platoon are still wonderful friends of mine. But Lou went on to SEAL Team Six, had an incredible career there, and uh, he was one of the ones that went down on uh, with Extortion Seventeen, with the the Dev Grew or SEAL Team Six uh, uh, troop that was going to go uh, provide some quick reaction for a Ranger battalion that was in a, in a wicked firefight, and um, and their C seventeen got shot down. So, largest loss yes. of, of SEAL life in one you know, seal lives in one incident. So I had some others on that plane that were friends, but Lou and I were really uh, close. So, yeah, so I'll carry Lou's load.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that with us. So Mark, yeah. it's been a pleasure and uh, I look forward to meeting you in person uh, one day. We'd love to have you out for uh, uh, for our Memorial March uh, mm-hmm. somewhere along the uh, the West Coast or be great. or here in Dallas. So For all of you out there in America, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, We appreciate everything you do for us in support of us while we try to do what we can in support of you. And remember always have a very good answer to the question who are you carrying?